Hey everyone, welcome back. This week our guest is Derek Sivers, a writer, programmer, entrepreneur, and former owner of CD Baby, an online store for independent musicians. This episode is in two parts, and today we're talking about building a life around values such as learning, growth, and minimalism, and exploring freedom to its extremes. Find all the links and show notes at futurethinkers.org slash 116. And a quick announcement, our giveaway contest is continuing into its third round. Enter to win six months worth of Future Thinkers membership and one month supply of qualia nootropic energy. You can go to futurethinkers.org slash giveaway to check that out. Hey, and welcome to futurethinkers.org, a podcast about the evolution of technology, society, and consciousness. I'm Mike Gilliland. And I'm Yuvia Ivanova. If you're new to the show and you want to get a list of our favorite books, popular episodes, and to join our community, go to futurethinkers.org slash start. So thanks for joining us. Uh, it's uh, really cool that you're uh, kind of coming out of your uh, recluse years, it seems. And um, I'd love to... So, wait, sorry, what was that word? Recluse years? R- recluse year. Recluse oh, re- years. Oh, I thought you made it. I thought that was like a fancy French word, like, you're recluse years. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I didn't know that one. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. Reclusive years. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'd love to hear about what you've been up to and, uh, you're working on three books right now. So, uh, one of them is, is called Hell Yeah or No, which is a, a title that, uh, very much speaks, speaks to us. And, um, yeah, I'd love to hear about that and the kind of philosophy behind that, uh, that approach to life. Okay. You want to hear about that now? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, Okay, so hell yeah or no is, it's really just a very tiny idea. And it goes like this, that we tend to say yes to too many things. And because of this, we're spread too thin. Um, We're so busy doing average things that we don't have time for the occasional great thing. So instead, I propose raising the bar as high as you can. So that if you're feeling anything less than, oh, hell yeah, that would be amazing, then just say no. Um, By doing this, you will miss out on many good things, but that's okay because your time will be quite empty. So then by saying no to the merely good things, you'll have the time and the energy and the space in your life to throw yourself in entirely when that occasional great thing comes up. So um, that's it. I can imagine, um, just because we also have a, a, a content brand, I can imagine the comment section could get pretty ugly at, at that. Uh, what, what do you think, um, what, are, what kind of responses do you get to that idea? Like, you know, oh, oh easy for you to say or something like that. Like, what, oh, like that. how do you respond? Um, well, no, the, the only ones that I feel the need to correct people on are when they try to apply this rule to everything. Mm. So they say, like, I'll get an email from somebody saying, yeah, I'm just just out of college and looking at a bunch of job offers, but man, none of them are a hell yeah. So I'm just saying no to all of them. I'm like, no, 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 hold on. This is a specific tools for a specific situation. It's when you're overwhelmed and you have too many options and you want to prevent drowning, then you use this tool. It's not meant to be used for everything in life. It's not meant to be used for, uh, I think there are different stages. I mean, the 
different stages of your life need different strategies. So if you're at the beginning of your career and you're trying to discover where your uh, lottery tickets are going to hit in life, because, you know, it's some skill and some luck, then it's a better strategy to say yes to everything. Um, and it's usually after somebody gets successful, then they're drowning in opportunities. You know, they say that most small businesses don't die of starvation, they drown. Uh, they drown in opportunities because they say yes to too many things. So I just think that when you're successful at something, when you're overwhelmed with opportunity, then you use hell yeah or no as a decision-making tool to keep you focused. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm really glad you made that clarification. Actually, that was a little bit of a question mark for me, but that really applies. I can see that in my life as I'm, you know, attached to my screen or a thousand sticky notes of all the things I have to do. <laughs> ah, yeah. I, man, that's, I'm just, con we'll get into this later. I imagine about minimalism and stuff like that, but it, to me, it's kind of all tied together. It's about constantly asking yourself what's, what's really important, what's necessary, and then getting rid of the rest. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that, that's uh, your idea that you've talked about recently of uh, uh, building your life around your values. So I'd, I'd like to hear about, first of all, how you pick those values that are important for you. And of course, they're going to be different for everybody at different stages in their lives. Um, and also, I'd like to hear about some of your experiments in arranging your life around those values and how they've gone well, or maybe how they've completely gone wrong or, or just had really unexpected, ridiculous results. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, hmm. I mean, first, I should say that... I'm not looking for a normal life. So if I say things that sound strange, like a lot of my friends often say like, why do you feel this need to be so all or nothing, so black or white? It's like, well, because I like exploring the extremes. Um, and in a way I think it's more honest. So here's why. When I realize that one value has a higher priority than another value, I have to ask myself if I'm living accordingly. So like if I say that my kid is more important to me than my phone, it's one thing to say that. But if I'm on my phone when I'm with my kid, then now I'm living, it's like I'm lying with my actions. I'm living incongruently. I'm saying this thing is more important than, I'm saying that my hierarchy is like this, but my actions are proving otherwise. So I feel I need the need to sort that out. Um, is my phone actually more important to me than my kid? Was I lying about what I said? Um, or if not, then why are my actions not in line with my beliefs? And so then I'll do some daydreaming or journaling or whatever you want to call it. And I'll figure out how, how it would look if my actions were in line with my beliefs. I'll, I'll usually take each belief system to its logical conclusion. You know what I mean? Like I take, I, I enjoy taking it all the way to say, if that's really true, then, you know, and so in that tiny example, I just said, it would be like, I will, anytime I'm with my kid, I'll just keep my phone off, like completely off or in airplane mode or silent. Like I will not touch it when I'm with him. He is always more important than the phone. Um, but let's pick a more interesting, like nuanced one. 
um, like if I say that learning and growing is my top value and, and I say that yeah, this is what's most important to me in life, you know, I'm saying, okay, maybe like here's the health and well-being of my kid. Here's learning and growing. Like I wouldn't sacrifice my kid in the name of learning and growing. But so that is that obvious exception aside. So if I say that learning and growing is my top value, but I'm living in a comfortable house in a familiar neighborhood with a nice fire in the fireplace in a neighborhood full of people like me, I have to ask myself, um, is this congruent with my values? Um, I'm not sure I need to explore that. Like I could be right now living in a slum in Mumbai and having more of a learning growing experience, but would the friction of that cause me to grow less in other ways? Like would the friction of daily life somewhere difficult actually slow my learning growing progress in other ways or would it actually enhance it? So sometimes I'll go experiment with these things. I'll go live somewhere very uncomfortable and see how that does with learning and growing, or at least I'll like daydream about it and make plans of it. Like maybe I don't want to up and move my whole life just for an experiment like this, but these are the kinds of like, this, that's a better example of something that I'm always, always wondering and always exploring. Um, and maybe it helps that I'm uh, not just willing, but enthusiastic to try living an extreme life um, that's extremely in accordance with my values and beliefs. Does that make sense? Yep. What I don't think some... I've ever explained that to somebody before. So I don't mm -hmm. know if that was just, you know, vague uh, rambling or not. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you give some examples, that'd be awesome. Like what are some experiments that you've done where you actually voluntarily threw yourself into uncomfortable, unfamiliar situations to see what would happen? Um, I mean, I've moved a lot. Um, so I moved to Singapore 10 years ago and just kind of made this, oh God, I mean, sorry, you're bringing up a whole bunch. I, I married somebody, I, I married somebody I had just met to experiment with the idea of commitment. Um, I moved to Singapore uh, with one suitcase to experiment, like understanding a different way of looking at the world, like the Confucian values of living in Asia are so different from my individualistic American values that it took me a while to adapt to that um, and just the whole kind of lifestyle of that. Um, I'll experiment with social things. Like if I, if I find myself too um, loyal to the self-definition of being an introvert, I feel the need to question that. Like I, I like to um, break loyalties and question things that I think are true. So if I find myself believing something too strongly, that makes me want to try um, going against it to see what happens. Uh, so I'll go be an extrovert for a while and I'll go meet with everybody and be around people all the time and experiment with that. And um, uh, yeah, then I, you know, I tried to, uh, I moved to New Zealand to go experiment with uh, six years of solitude, um, you, know, you know, not solitary confinement in a jail, but you know, relative solitude to the rest of my life. Um, and then just now where I'm living in Oxford, uh, I had been living so minimalistic for so long that I moved here and experimented with the opposite. Like I got a house and I furnished it. I got a car and like all that kind of stuff 
that I thought I would never have. I just decided to try it. I have a stocked kitchen now. That's really weird for me. <laughs> I, I have like a cutting board. I'd never had a cutting board before. Um, so um, I don't know. So I'm experimenting with it and I'm not sure I like it. I think I might give away everything again next year and go back to what feels more honest to me, which is to just have only the things that I use every single week. And if I don't use it every week, I really don't need it. It's funny how similar, how many similarities there are between us in this respect, like the, this kind of, first of all, uh, inv investigating our ideas about life to their end points. That's one thing that we've really done a lot over the years. And there, another part is this experimentation and, and travel has been a really big part of that. We did, we left um, Canada in 2013, I think it was, and then have lived all over Southeast Asia. And now we live in Bulgaria. So it's kind of a similar thing, this minimalist, like uh, away from the Western world. But one thing I've noticed along the way is there are a lot of people who've done something similar, made a business um, and had some success with it and then fallen into some kind of existential crisis of like, okay, well, I've done this, now what? And I'm wondering if that was the case for you as well. Well, I think it's because you have a blank slate and you have the time. So... Um... Yeah, an ex was asking me, as I, I was doing my usual kind of pondering and this kind of stuff we're talking about. Oh, and the fact that I, I write in my journal like one to three hours a day, right? Often just ex um, daydreaming possible futures and other things I could be doing with my life. I'll just often write about these kind of things. And she said, um, have you always been like this? And I said, yeah, I've always been. And I had to stop myself going, wait, have I always been like this? No. It actually started not when I sold the company, but when I was free of it, like labor-wise. Like there was a, a year or two before I sold the company, I basically was just the owner, but I didn't actually, I wasn't required to be anywhere or do anything. So I think that's when it all started because um, for the rest of my life up until then, I was just like very like, uh, you know, the horse blinders on, like very, like head down, very focused, like I am working on this and I'm driven and, and just all other options can piss off. <laughs> like it's just, I know exactly what I'm after. I always found it weird when like people would like read blogs. I'm like, what are you reading? Don't you know what you want in life? What are you reading blogs for? <laughs> How do you, you have know the time for that? <laughs> yes, like all this stuff. Like, I, I, And I just felt like, I was on an absolute like laser focused mission for uh, like 20 years, 24 years to be exact. Um, from the age of 14 to 38, I was pursuing one single thing. And then at wow. 38, that's when uh, the, the one thing I had been pursuing for the last 10 years, CD Baby, my company, suddenly I was free of it. And it just felt like this huge blank slate. And my first impulse was to do more of the same. So it's like literally the day after I sold my company, I like I slept well that night with an empty head. And the next morning I woke up and I was making breakfast and I went, oh, I just had an idea, <laughs> my next company. You know, and uh, <laughs> I immediately dove into that. Um, it was called Muckwork. And I spent like the next three or four months just immediately like programming it. And I hired a manager. I dove into it as a, right, this is my next thing. I believe in this completely. 
And after four months, I had to stop myself because I realized that, that my trajectory would be exactly the same. I would take one company name off my mantelpiece. What do you call that? Yeah, over the, uh, mm-hmm. over your door, you know, take one company name off and put a different company name there. But my actions and my life would remain exactly the same. So that's when I realized like, no, 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 no. I want to make a real change. So that's when I started more with this kind of blank slate approach to life. And also um, the habit of deliberately saying no to all the things I used to say yes to and saying yes to all the things I used to say no to just to do this like deliberate squelching of previous habits. There are so many um, kind of parallels in a lot of spiritual paths as well with this, like the minimalism, the deconstruction work, all of this stuff. Um, Does that, I mean, did you actually have that existential crisis at some point after, you know, it sounds like you immediately went back into it, but at at some point, did you kind of have any breakdown of being like, this is not what I'm doing anymore. I need, I'm changing as a person. Oh yeah, a bit. I mean, to me, it was the, um, asking yourself, is there such a thing as too much freedom? So this is what I found myself asking before I sold the company, but that last year where I was no longer necessary. Um, I was the owner. It was very profitable and it was completely delegated. I, I, they didn't need me for anything. So I found myself asking these two questions. Um, what do you do when you don't have to do anything and you can do anything? And where do you go when you don't have to be anywhere and you can be anywhere? Um, it kind of messed me up that it's like I had a lot of money in the bank and I had just broken up with my girlfriend like a year or two before. I was just completely free and nobody was expecting me to be anywhere. And I just had this bank account in this time I could just start an ostrich farm in Mongolia if I want to, or, you know, <laughs> take scuba diving lessons in Iceland or go learn Arabic in Egypt. It's like, just, it was like too wide open. And so every day I just kind of kept thinking or I was feel I was overwhelmed with all the different things I could be doing. And maybe that's where um, this questioning of values comes into it. You have to ask yourself, okay, well, I can do anything. Like wh- what, what are my values? Sometimes you, you can do that just by asking yourself and writing in your diary. You can say, well, these are my values. Um, but it, it can be more effective to look back at your past and ask yourself, like, when was I happiest and why? Or what seems to be a constant thread through my past? Like a constant thread of what's worked for me consistently in the past? What do I tend to to like. And so what did you arrive at through that exploration? You mentioned your value of learning and growing that you hold that pretty highly. Was there anything else that you noticed? Any other threads? Mm, Happy, smart, and useful. This was a big one. I realized that whenever my life feels unsatisfying, it's because I'm not satisfying all three of those. the intersection of what makes me happy, um, what's smart, meaning long-term good for me, and what's useful to others. So it's okay to do one or two of those, 
But I think if you're not doing all three, something ultimately feels unsatisfying. You know, and you could do these these uh, combinations. Like you could do something that makes you happy and is smart, but if it's not useful to others, it just kind of feels, you know, um, circular, uh, self-contained. You could do something that's useful for others and might be smart, but if you're not happy doing it, then it's like, we can t try to talk ourselves out of happiness, but it's kind of like the oil in the machine, you know, like the machine starts to break down if it doesn't have that the oil of happiness. Um, yeah, so that's a common thread I noticed. Are you familiar with the Japanese concept of ikigai? No, I've heard the word, but I never found out what it means. It's pr pretty much exactly that. So it's a Venn diagram that is the overlap of uh, what you love, what you're good at, uh, what you can get paid for, and what the world needs. Oh, all right. Yeah. Cool. And so, damn, I thought I came up with that. <laughs> <laughs> That's another funny thing I've noticed too. Like the more time you have to reflect, the more kind of well, if, if they they all feel like brilliant, unique ideas, and then you recognize <laughs> like brilliant and unique people have also come up with those things too. So right. it's kind of a it's complimentary, I think. <laughs> That's what like, freaked me out about when I I was uh, forty two when I read my first book on stoicism. And I went, holy shit, I thought it was just me. Like, <laughs> yeah. this, this is my quirky, weird Derek philosophy I've been living by since I was like 14 years old. Like all this, this whole thing about making life deliberately tough on yourself to yeah. strengthen yourself for the unknown future. Like all this stuff is like my quirky philosophy I've been living by for 25 years. And holy shit, it's, it's got a name. It's got an ism. It's yeah. 2000 years old. That's amazing. Yeah, that blew my mind to realize it wasn't just me. Yeah, that's really the same for me as well. That's been one of those things that has been un uncovered after years and years of practice and ignorance. Mm. Yeah. It, yeah, it's, um, I think it's really interesting to look at these kinds of patterns, uh, you know, insights or whatever, and, and recognize uh, how common they are in, in history or in different wisdom traditions. There's There's something about it that kind of, Mm, it's like it's our common humanity you know if you look deep enough into the abyss something looks back and it's often similar things for for people like in some ways we're not so unique i think it's it's very humbling in a positive way you know i think about um did you guys know that sorry this was new to me this maybe you've known this forever that that eyeballs evolved in nature like 40 different unrelated times. But it's not like, like if you look at a squid and their eyeballs are kind of similar to ours, it's not like, oh, we have some common parent with eyeballs. No, no, no. It's the, the whole idea of two eyes filled with liquid, liquid and a lens and a retina and all that, like independently evolved like 40 different times. So it's like nature over and over and over again has decided this is a way to see predators and prey and to get visual information it's reinvented the same way almost over and over again that's really cool so i think about that with what you just said philosophically it's like you could just sit all by yourself completely disconnected from the world come up with something and find out yeah it's the same thing that everybody else came up with because maybe it's the logical conclusion yeah there is an um, interview we did a little while back with dean radin who talks about real magic um and he he goes over experiments that have been shown to 
when animals and humans come up with ideas all over the world at the same time, like he, one example was this, uh, flock of crows. I think it was in, in England and, uh, they all suddenly gained the knowledge all at once of how to open the milk caps on the milk that was being delivered to everyone's homes in the morning. And like across the country, all of them learned it all at once. Oh. Yeah. The brand new Future Thinkers members portal is now live. Develop your sovereignty and self-knowledge with our in-depth courses, get access to our weekly sense-making calls, join the Q&As with past podcast guests, and much more. Become a Future Thinkers member today at futurethinkers.org slash members. Enter the Future Thinkers giveaway and win our brand new community membership, including in-depth courses, private calls, and more, as well as a supply of Qualia, a complete cognitive upgrade for your brain. To enter the contest, simply go to futurethinkers.org giveaway and sign up for our mailing list to instantly get our 50-page guide on how to adapt to the future. There are many ways to increase your chances of winning. Enter the competition today. You talk about your... Um your love for stoicism or minimalism. So I wanted to pick your brain about that a bit. How has that manifested in your life? And what kind of things have emerged from it um, as a result of practicing it? So what have been some of the second order effects of choosing that lifestyle that might not be obvious for people? Okay. I think yeah, this is something I've never really talked about. Um, so thanks for bringing it out. Um, we often think of minimalism in terms of stuff. Um, but to me, I just find, talk about like the common thread when I look back about what's made me happiest for my whole life. Minimalism is one of those things that just over and over and over again, I just get such joy out of um, seeing what I can do without. So uh, the core idea of minimalism, right? This idea that stuff weighs you down with more downsides than upsides. Like often when we get something in our life, we think of the upside of it. But to me, I see the downsides more than the upside. So some aspects of this are, um, say, taking things seriously. So the, the, I guess these might be like, you call them second order effects. So um, taking things seriously, for example. So considering the long-term impact of things not just the environmental impact, but like the impact on your psyche of having a thing. Like if I were to hang a clarinet on the wall in front of me right now, that would do something to my psyche. I'd be thinking I should be playing that clarinet or I should be doing something. It's like everything in my life feels like it should have some purpose. So if it's sitting there with no purpose, it's like a little part of my brain is still spinning about that thing. Um, letting go of the unimportant to leave space. So uh, kind of like minimalist music has space between the notes. So I think of that in my own life, like leaving space in my life. That's kind of the hell yeah or no thing. It's like, it's okay to like leave your time and your calendar empty. Cause if you have space in your life, then you can throw yourself you all in when you find something great. Um, focusing my attention. So uh, like minimalist art, for example, we'll just put, you know, one single line and a circle. And by doing that, it says like, no, 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 really focus on that and that. And so I think of that in life, like when you get rid of everything else that doesn't matter, 
you really focus on the few things that are left. Like it's, it's really the, um, I was going to say, what's the opposite of diffused, but I guess it focused is the opposite of diffused. It's a very uh, focused attention. Um, I think it keeps you future focused too, because um, when you're future focused, you're often doing things today in service of your future self, right? You're not living for today. You're living for future you. So, being minimalist means that future you will have less to look after, less to maintain, less to store, less to upkeep. Um, uh, you know, we talked about programming for a second before. So having less code today means less that your future self has to maintain and upgrade when packages are upgraded or whatever. Um, so yeah, being minimalist, second order effect, uh, being more future focused, uh, having less baggage gives you more options in life. So I, I think there are a lot of people I know um, quite well that would consider doing different things in their life, but they live in a big house with a lot of stuff and a big mortgage. And so eh, can't, you know, um, they just have too much stuff that they've grown accustomed to, too. So they they start to think of too many things as necessities. So even the idea of traveling with one bag, they're just like, I, I can't. I need too much stuff every day. But it's because they have too much stuff. So it's uh, they've reduced their options in life because they have too much stuff. Um, uh, two more. So having a small identity. Um, so instead of saying like, I am a programmer, rock climber, a musician, cyclist, Republican, Buddhist, French film fan, uh, clarinet player. <laughs> um, that's a lot of identity to maintain. Like if you say, I am these things, well then you, that's a lot of actions you're going to have to do to uphold that identity. Because you can't just keep saying that you are something if your actions are not supporting it anymore. You can't say you're a rock climber if you haven't climbed rocks in 20 years. So by like identity can be baggage. Um, and lastly, um, a second order effect uh, would be more deciding that it means almost every day or very, very often you're making real decisions about what's important and what's not. Um, yeah, deciding what's important and letting go of the rest. Um, yeah. So I, I do this every day. Like I constantly look at everything in my life, like even, you know, that whole uh, list of things I just said. And I think I look at all these things saying, do I really need that? Um, both physical and non-physical, you know, uh, do I really need these things? Do I really need that identity as part of my identity? Uh, do I really need uh, that code in my site? Do I really need that functionality? in my website? Are people using that? If not, get rid of it. Um, do I really need all these old photos? Am I using them? Do I really need, you know, like all of these things. Um, that goes for goals. I, oh, I'm constantly letting go of goals. I, I had tons of past goals that I'm constantly looking through these goals going, do I need that goal anymore? Like, yeah, that was something I wanted to do eight years ago and I haven't done it yet. But every day I keep that goal in my list of goals is... Uh, so it, it does something to my psyche, keeping it there. Um, contacts, I constantly go through my phone. If there's somebody I haven't talked to in a year and I'm like not desperately missing them, I just delete it. So like my phone has, I think, 25 contacts in it. That's it, oh, which is wonderful. Um, 
food. Uh, I get rid of every food I don't like. You know, sometimes I'll buy food thinking, yeah, I'll cook something with that tempeh. You know, it doesn't happen. I get rid of it. Um, habits. There's some habits I just do that maybe started for a good reason long ago, but if I notice that I'm still doing them, but they don't have a place in my life anymore, I get rid of it. My my phone only has two apps on it because I just realized like all these other apps I don't really use. So I just have the two that I actually use. Yeah. God, sorry, that was a really long answer. It no, was a really, good. really good one because uh, kind of grounding it in, in very real life things rather than keeping it abstract, I think is really useful for people because it gives them ideas of how they can do it in their own life if they're considering it. And maybe they don't want to. So like my sister, for example, is the opposite. She lives in a huge house with like four kids and two dogs and tons of stuff. And that makes her happy. And so just because somebody might be a fan of your podcast or something like that doesn't mean that they need to buy into this, you know? Um, we might just want it in one little aspect of your life. Um, I like it because it, for some weird reason, I it, it feels better to me to have less, just in general, at any given moment. I would rather be in an empty room than in a full room. I'd rather have an empty calendar than a full calendar. Some people are the opposite. Like they feel alive when their calendar is full and they feel alive if they have a million contacts in their phone. I feel the opposite. I, I like that space to grow, to change and to focus. Um, also, I really like challenging myself to see what I can do without because the comfort I get from knowing and proving to myself that I don't need something is ultimately greater than the comfort of having it, of having something. You know what I mean? It's like a greater comfort to know I don't need it. So I'm constantly pushing myself to see what I don't need. And it's, you haven't really uh, talked about this very much, but I really wonder because when, when you remove all the stuff, and there's all this space, that space is a space of potentiality. So what kind of things emerge from that? It's like, uh, if, if you're, every minute of your day is filled with meetings and things, then there's no space for that emergence. I can't help but think of like my own, like this is just applying so much to me right now in like what I need to change. And I'm like trying to focus on an interview, but I'm also like, fuck. <laughs> Man, <laughs> like so many things I'm doing right now, I need to stop. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's been a little bit the opposite. Like we've added, I don't know, eight or oh, ten, know. 10 new projects to our <laughs> plate in the last couple months. <laughs> it's an experiment. It's all an experiment. You know, it's funny. I, I'd be the worst accountability buddy. I have this one dear friend of mine. She's one of my best friends, but... She constantly wants to do that damn accountability partner kind of thing. She's like, oh, Derek, I want to go on a diet. Will you be my accountability buddy? Well, let's go do the diet at the same time and we'll hold each other to keeping to it. I'm like, I don't, I break loyalties every day. Like every day, I, like I'll have, it's something that I felt loyal to sometimes for decades. Like, you know what I just did a few weeks ago? Um, this whole process we're talking about, I just gave away all of my music equipment, everything, all of my guitars, my keyboards, my this, my everything but this microphone, because I thought it might have other non-musical uses. But it was like a, just like two or three weeks ago, I had been 
feeling this guilt every day about these two guitars that are sitting there that I just haven't been playing. And I say that it's an important value to me, but I'm not actually doing it. And I just, so every day I was, had this little bit of guilt, like I should be spending more time doing that. I should. In fact, when I moved here from New Zealand to Oxford, England, I only, I only own and only brought with me one paper book and it's still here. It's called Great Songwriting Techniques by Jack Paracone who is my old songwriting teacher at Berklee School of Music, like whatever, 30 years ago. Um, and it's the only book I, book I brought with me because I still had this in my list of goals. Like, I'm going to get back into songwriting. Like I wrote 100 songs 20 years ago. I loved it. I still had this as part of my identity. Like I'm a musician. I'm a songwriter. This is me. So just three weeks ago, when I thought like, no, I really need to be spending more time on songwriting, I, I caught myself thinking like, yeah, but you know, four hours writing a song is four hours I could be spending doing something I really want to do more. I thought, God, I really need to let go of this whole music goal thing. Like I, I need to let this go from my identity. So my best friend here in Oxford is a full-time musician, like a full-time professional musician. This is his living. So I called him up and I was like, how'd you like a couple new guitars? He's like, dude, are you seriously getting rid of your Strat? I want it. I was like, <laughs> you can have my Strat, Tom. And I gave him my Strat. I gave him my wonderful 88 key weighted keyboard and the synth with 20 whatever gigs of sounds. And uh, he's thrilled and he uses it every single day. I even gave him my speakers. I looked at my speakers. I was like, I got headphones. I don't need speakers. And, uh, yeah, I gave it all away. That was like a huge identity thing for me to let go of that. I didn't regret it for one second. Did Shit. It? I even had a dog a few months ago. And then my mom said she was like wanting to adopt a dog. I was like, you know what? I don't really need my dog. You can have my dog. I gave her <laughs> my that, dog. I thought that story was going to have a much sadder ending to it. <laughs> you were just like, I just dog. But no, like, even my dog, it's like I'd only had him for six months, but I thought I was going to have him for 12 years. He was a puppy. And like, then I just looked at my life and I was like, you know, that was a, the dog was a hypothesis. <laughs> and um, my mom and her husband were like out there looking for that exact kind of dog. They were going around to dog shelters trying to adopt that kind of dog that I have. And I was just like, you know what? I'm going to give you my dog. Um, so yeah, I constantly, I have no loyalty except to uh, my dear friends and family. And that's it. Even identities, habits, goals, no loyalty. You know what I notice about watching you and listening to you is that you pretty much have a permanent smile the whole time. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, it's, yeah. I think it's reflective <laughs> of these philosophies. Well, we're also talking about something exciting, you know, if you start to bring up politics or say the T word, yeah, it's been, you know. Um, yeah, we're talking about things I love talking about. What's the T word? Don't, don't <laughs> say it. I don't know any day, any day I don't have to hear the T word is a good day. Okay. I actually don't even know what you're talking about. I don't know what it is <laughs> good, good. Then we won't talk about it. Okay, great. Oh, oh, okay. I got it. I got it. Yeah, it took a second. We 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 live in a different part of the world where it's just it's not an everyday uh, occurrence. Good. Um, I but I'm really glad that you bring up the psychological aspect of stuff and of attachments. Um, because I, I really agree with you. They, they really take up space in your head. It's like they're, they're little notifications that pop up like, oh, I ha have to deal with this and I have to think about this. And, um, 
especially with identity, because uh, I, I really think that it, it takes uh, energy to maintain an ego, you know, because the, the ego has needs it, like it, it needs a reinforcement. It needs like proof in the world. Validation. Validation. It needs boundaries. Uh, it, it like it, it constantly pings you to do things for it. <laughs> right. Which which you may decide. You know, what's interesting is I, I learned that there is there's the word. OK, so stress. Stress has we often think of it in terms of distress, like negative stress, but positive stress is called eustress, E-U-S-T-R-E-S-S, eustress. And I thought that was such a cool term to learn because there are many times where you want this as your identity because it gives you that eustress. Like it actually pushes you in a way you want to be pushed and therefore you keep that. Like if it nudges you a way you want to be nudged, but yeah, you have to keep asking yourself, if that's still true, even if it was true 10 years ago or 10 days ago, is it still true now? I prefer to think about identity as clothing rather than skin, you know? Like you can put it on and take it off and you don't have to commit to it. Do you guys have tattoos? Uh, a few. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I, I never got tattoos because to me, it's the, like you just said, identity, clothes, skin. I was just like, anytime I considered it for one second, I was like, I might not want that someday. You know, you were talking about the music story, and I do have a couple of guitars lying around the house, and I want to buy a drum set, and I have tattooed it on my arms. <laughs> Whoa! See, that's a commitment. That's cool. But uh, I haven't touched the guitar in a year. <laughs> oh. so. Yeah, I, it, yeah, I often come back to this place of um, it's better to get rid of something, and and if you miss it, get it back. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's better to err on the side of no. And then if, if you do miss something then you get it back, um, sorry, I kind of, I was thinking about it, like 20 years ago, I was in a relationship where we were just like, where it was like, should we break up or should we not? And it's like, we were kind of like, I don't know. This is, we said, well, how about this? Let's just break up. And then if we miss each other, we'll get back together. It's like when in doubt, err on the side of no. And so, yeah, we did break up. And after like two months, we're just like, okay, we I hate being breaking up. I hate being broken up. We were talking on the phone every other day. She kept coming over. We're just like, what are we doing? We're obviously <laughs> like glued to each other. So, so that. But it was. It felt better instead of saying like, staying together because we're together. It's like, well, yeah. When in doubt, um, yeah, go back to nothing and see how much you miss it. Hmm. Yeah, and it really tests your kind of uh, choice making ability. Because then, then you, uh, it reinforces that it is a choice to do something and you're not just yes. doing it out of habit or by default or, you know, because that can really breed resentment. Yeah. Yeah. Well put. I like that. Huh. Um, so how do you approach making commitments if you do and, uh, like, do you have a different kind of procedure for making commitments? Because obviously some commitments are easier to break than others. For example, the commitment to having a child is a much more long-term thing. But what maybe, about maybe other it's kinds not. Of... <laughs> maybe you've got someone in the wings. <laughs> oh, my parents. Maybe there's 
another family who is looking for a dog to kid just like this. They were looking for a kid just like him. You know, here you go. I don't need him. I mean, I'm sure I'll be okay without. No. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I just try to not make commitments whenever possible. Because um, I, I always feel like I'm going to let people down because I know my tendency to to, to have no have no loyalty to things. Um, I have no problem changing my mind and saying no to something I previously said yes to. I'm totally okay with that. Um, so do I have a process for making commitments? Um, no, no, I just really avoid it. I think there were times like, um, like two years ago, I lost 40 pounds because I had been want, saying I wanted to for years and then it just, it just became my top priority. It's just like, you know what? This is now my top priority. And as soon as I made it my top priority, all my actions fell in line with that. I just, I completely cut out all sugar, wheat, dairy, even caffeine, just for the hell of it. Um, I started eating like almost nothing. I waited till I was really, really hungry. If my tummy was actually grumbling, then I'd have a bowl of vegetables, otherwise nothing. And I lost 40 pounds in just like a few months. Um, and when friends said like, whoa, how'd you do it? I was just like, it became a priority. Like then, I mean, you could say that was kind of a commitment because then it was just like, yeah, of course this isn't fun, but it's like, this is now a commitment. It won't be a forever commitment. It was a few months. Um, it could have gone on longer, but after like, after a few months I felt, okay, that's good enough. I'm happy now. And then something else became a higher priority than that. So does that help? Yeah. Were you able to maintain that weight after uh -huh. you lost it? Yeah. Hmm. How? I don't know. <laughs> Sorry, you're asking the wrong guy. I don't. I'm not a, a micromanager about that kind of stuff. Uh huh. Hmm. So it's like, yeah, you make commitments when the time feels right for you, and it's not a forever commitment. Do you communicate that to other people? Because sometimes the expectations that people have around these things are different. I avoid. Yeah, I avoid public announcement. See, that's a whole accountability thing. Some people really get off on that, like, I'm going to publicly declare something and then I'm going to feel guilty and I'm going to hold myself to it because of social guilt, but that just doesn't work on me. Like, I have no problem bringing it. So it's a kind of a, there was a thing on my blog that um, uh, a month ago, a month and two days ago, I had to look at the date on the, <laughs> a month and two days ago, I said, I'm going to start publishing something on my blog every single day. I'm not going to announce it. I'm just going to start doing it. So I started doing it. And after like three and a half weeks, I thought, okay, some people are asking me like, what the hell's going on? Because I, I used to have, I used to just post something on my blog every few months and I would email out every time I did. And suddenly I was posting every single day without emailing people. So some people were starting to ask like, what's, am I, did you kick me off the email list? What's going on? So I sent out something to my list saying, I'm doing this experiment where I'm writing, I'm posting something to my blog every single day. Um, and I, if this continues, I might start a, a, a list about it. And then sure enough, just, you know, a few days after announcing that, I kind of went off to Paris with my kid for a few days and just decided not to bring my phone or computer and just like went with no text. So it's like, I was offline for a few days. So it's like, well, there were no posts for a few days. And so it's like, well, there was no, um, I, I shouldn't have publicly said anything, 
But the fact that I did didn't suddenly make me feel that I had a boss or, or an obligation. Um, I just felt like, man, I think I just, maybe feeling free is really important to me. I think I tend to have this um, rebellion even against myself. If I even just, um, I always slept on like this side of the bed. And then I just caught myself, I was like, why do I always sleep on this side of the bed? It's like, let's switch. I'm going to take the other side for, and it's just like, I just constantly catch myself. If something starts to feel too much like a habit or addiction or some kind of, I'll just intentionally change it up just because. All right, that was part one of our interview with Derek Sivers. You can find all the links and show notes at futurethinkers.org slash 116. And stay tuned for part two that goes out next week. The brand new Future Thinkers members portal is now live. Develop your sovereignty and self-knowledge with our in-depth courses. Get access to our weekly sense-making calls. Join the Q&As with past podcast guests and much more. Become a Future Thinkers member today at futurethinkers.org slash members. To stay up to date with new episodes, subscribe to Future Thinkers on your favorite platform. And leave us a review or a like. It really helps out the show. And don't forget to share this episode on social media. Enter the Future Thinkers giveaway and win our brand new community membership, including in-depth courses, private calls, and more. As well as a supply of Qualia, a complete cognitive upgrade for your brain. To enter the contest, simply go to futurethinkers.org giveaway and sign up for our mailing list to instantly get our 50-page guide on how to adapt to the future. There are many ways to increase your chances of winning. Enter the competition today. This episode is brought to you by Qualia, a nootropic supplement that helps support mental performance and mood. To get 10% off, use the code FUTURE at checkout. And to learn more about neurohacking, visit futurethinkers.org neuro. Welcome back to part two of our interview with writer, programmer, and entrepreneur Derek Sivers. This week, we talk about the daily practices for increasing self-knowledge and many different ways in which people can thrive and find fulfillment. You can find all the links and show notes for this interview at futurethinkers.org slash 117. And a quick announcement, our giveaway contest is continuing into the third round. You can enter to win six months worth of a Future Thinkers membership and one month's supply of Qualia Nootropic Energy. Just go to futurethinkers.org slash giveaway to check that out. Hey, and welcome to futurethinkers.org, a podcast about the evolution of technology, society, and consciousness. I'm Mike Gilliland. And I'm Yuvia Ivanova. If you're new to the show and you want to get a list of our favorite books, popular episodes, and to join our community, go to futurethinkers.org slash start. Um, you're working on another book right now that's called How to Live. Ooh. Uh, <laughs> it's, it, yes. And it's interesting to me, actually, in context of everything that we've spoken about so far, that um, you're approach to life is in some ways unconventional and probably rubs a lot of people wrong because it goes counter to how uh, a lot of other people operate and a lot of their expectations. So uh, in that context, a book that is titled How to Live is particularly interesting. So can you dig into what that's going to be about? It is not what you expect. It is so exciting. Um... Okay. Uh, if you had to make me pick my favorite single book of all time, if you said, no, 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 not top 10, pick one, it would probably be the book Sum, S-U-M, by David Eagleman. Uh, it is a tiny, creative, fascinating book 
with uh, its subtitle is uh, 40 Tales of the Afterlives. And what he does is the format is fascinating. It's basically every chapter is answering the question, what happens when you die? But it's answering it in a radically different way. And each chapter is standalone. Like it's each chapter deliberately conflicts all the other chapters. So it'll be like chapter three. When you die, you're surrounded by a bunch of thuggish little creatures looking at you saying, what does answer? What does answer? And you find out uh, after a while that what you knew of as your life was actually an artificial intelligence program. You are an artificial intelligence program that they wrote to go figure out the meaning of life. And now that the program has stopped running, they're trying to get the answers out of you. And so you try to tell them what you learned about life, but every time you tell them, they just look at each other and furrow their brows and say, what does answer? And you realize that were we to write an artificial intelligence program smarter than us, we would be too dumb to understand its answers. That's it. That'll be like one chapter. Then the next chapter will say, when you die, um, you're greeted by a handler that tells you in your last life, you chose to be a man. But once again, you can always choose whatever creature you want to be. Every time it's your turn to live again, you get to... Um, be whatever creature you want. So you remember a wonderful day you had once as a man watching a horse grazing in a field and you admired its simple life, just eating grass in a field. And you'd say, you know what? I'd like to be a horse. No sooner said than done, you start to feel your arms change into legs and your hands turn into hoofs and your neck lengthens and your muscles are changing. But then you start to feel your brain turning into a horse's brain and you realize that you're starting to forget what a man is. And you realize, oh no, what I loved was being a complex man, appreciating this, the comparatively simple life of a horse. But if I don't even know what a man is anymore, I won't appreciate my simple life. You think I've made a horrible mistake and you try to say, wait, but all that comes out is <laughs> And at the last minute before you completely turn into a horse, you have a horrifying thought, which is, I wonder what kind of beautiful complex creature I must have been before that chose the simple life of a man you know and like every oh. chapter is like that it'll be like chapter seven uh, when you die you find out that yes God was in fact the creator but he's not a manager he created us billions of years ago he knocked over the first domino and he's off doing other things he doesn't even know we exist anymore you know um, so I just love 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 this format of 40 different answers to one question so uh, two years ago, I was like walking down the road and I suddenly was like, stopped in my tracks. I was like, oh my God, I want to write a book called How to Live. Like 25 different answers to that one question. Each chapter deliberately conflicting the others. Each chapter completely convinced it has the right answer. <laughs> persuasively telling you that, no, this is the way to live. And then the very next chapter will completely go against it because that's honestly how my mind works most of the time. So it's like, um, you know, one chapter will be, here's how to live. Um, you must be fully independent. All misery comes from um, uh, regrettable commitments to things. So you must at all times be completely free and independent. You must be free of all technology choices. You know, everything is all free of all commitments and relationships and this. and it'll be a chapter that's telling you like how to be completely independent and you just follow that to the logical conclusion. 
And you know, then the very next chapter will say, here's how to live, commit. <laughs> you need to pick a place, pick a person, and all the deeper joy in life comes from commitment, et cetera. And so um, uh, I couldn't come up with 40 to match the book Sum. So my book is definitely an homage to the book Sum, but I came up with 25 different ways to live and it's a blast to write because um, I actually believe in each one of these 25 and they're deliberately conflicting. And uh, That's yeah. so cool. Uh, so that's what I'm writing right now. That's great. <laughs> How many of them have you tried? Oh God. Uh, I don't know. Good. I'll, I'll think about that. <laughs> I don't know the answer to that. It feels like most of them at some point, you know, I told you that I like whimsically got married because I'm like commitment. That's what life is all about. You, you just pick, you commit. It's the joy of missing out. You get pride in all the choices you're not making. And it's like, did that for a few years and <laughs> until I didn't. And yeah. Um, yeah. I've gone all the way off the independent side. I've gone all the way to the uh, learning and growing, like learning and growing. That is the most important thing in life. And if that's the most important thing in life, then it logically follows that you would live as such. And so I'm also, um, it's written in, of course, you know, a very succinct format um, with what I call directives that we can talk all around a subject. We can talk for many paragraphs around it, or you can just say two sentences that say, do this. And I actually think that um, it's like the entire tree is contained in the seed. And sometimes I think the directive, just telling somebody without precursors or apologies saying, do this, is like the seed that carries all the other philosophies with it. The action is what really matters rather than all the talking around it. So it's written in a, uh, a laughably uh, direct, do this, live like this, marry this kind of person, live in this place kind of format because it's just more succinct and amusing instead of babbling on about things. That's interesting. And especially given the context that a lot of them were completely contradictory, uh, it might produce this meta insight in people that, yeah, there are all these different options, but if you're not doing it, that it doesn't really matter. Right. Really? Yeah. Yep. I like that um, it's absolute in this relative kind of format. Like it's absolute in every single chapter, but then the next thing contradicts it. So it I, I would imagine that relates to what you were saying, this relative meta insight that you would get. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very cool. And it's at, at first I thought that I was going to need a really damn good conclusion, like to wrap it all up. But then I thought that um, that's the difference between art and instruction. It's like when when you kind of think of something as art, then everybody's just free to make their own conclusion. If you're thinking of yourself as a professor, then you're trying to you know, tell people what to think. So I've decided that this is really more of an art project than a, I'm no professor. So there is no conclusion. Never conclude. That's the final rule. <laughs> Never conclude. Never and conclude. so concludes our interview. <laughs> <laughs> Should we end with that? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's interesting actually, because this, uh, it loops back to that idea of leaving space. And if you leave space, then it, something else can emerge. So if you, if you have a very specific conclusion, then it doesn't leave space. 
But if you leave it open, then all kinds of insights can emerge for people. And it might be totally different for different people. Yeah, it's it's fun, the idea of somebody saying like, and just the thought of somebody saying, what did he mean by that? That's more interesting than me telling them exactly what I meant by that. Hmm. Hmm. Are you uh, at all thinking about what kind of legacy your work is going to leave in the world? Um, I think that, um, like, I don't have any spiritual beliefs, really, but I think that um, our personality lives on after we die in the things that we create. Like, if there's any argument in favor, like, something that we could concretely, objectively call an afterlife, it would be, like, um, the way that you share your personality all your life. So it's like, right now, I can still go read uh, things written by people that are dead and totally get their personality, their way of thinking, their, uh, their framework. And um, so to me, they might as well still be alive. Um, that's what's weird when people get all, you know, upset that Ray Charles died or something. I'm like, really? Well, how many of his albums have you bought in the last 20 years? No, I mean, his new music, none. So why, he didn't, the man you didn't know died, but it doesn't matter because the things he created are very alive. So I don't um, think about, I don't like worry about my legacy like that, but thinking that thought that I just described um, is the kind of thing that kicks my ass a bit, uh, you stress, right? Um, towards uh, sharing more of my thoughts and ideas. Um, and I use my sight for that. Like to me, my sight is the legacy. Like anytime I'm doing anything on my site, I just imagine like this will be around for a hundred years after I die. Uh, another reason why, you know, it's not on WordPress and the less code, the better, because like future somebody is going to have to maintain it. So I just use bare bones HTML because who <laughs> knows what holographic devices this will be seen on in the future. And, you know, um, they might not have JavaScript yeah. anyway. Yeah. <laughs> huh? Yeah. That's interesting. <laughs> I, I think, I, I think long-term to a fault. Like when I said earlier about the tattoos, like, you know, it's like, even at the age of 14, I was like, I might not want tattoos when I'm 80. People are just looking at me weird. Like, dude, why are you thinking about being 80? I was like, well, it's coming. So I don't know. I, I just often think of everything very long-term like that um, to a fault. It's, it's strange to me that you, you say you're non-spiritual unless you, and, and yet you have so many spiritual practices that you engage with. I don't know. I mean, it's, they're practices, but I mean, I haven't looked up what the word spiritual means, but it seems to, it seems to be about like a spirit, like a, and spirit being like synonym for ghost, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's <laughs> belief in some like entity spirit thing. And I don't, I don't have that. So I don't know what you would call mm. it. I just, yeah, yeah I, I think it really comes out of that. What we've already discussed this, you've given yourself time to contemplate things that others have contemplated when they've had time and, and have come up with some great ideas and, and um, really figured out how exactly you want to live your life. I mean, that's what 
in my mind, what spirituality or what religion is all about is how, how to live. Mm. Cool. Hey everyone, just a reminder that the registration for our membership area closes on the 23rd of this month. Uh, if you want to check it out, get access to the courses and the group calls and any other events and workshops that we're doing. We've got a lot of them coming up. You can check that out by going to members.futurethinkers.org. I wanted to ask you about how you approach self-knowledge. How do you investigate uh, kind of yourself and and your beliefs? Um, and you've mentioned ident identity before. Do you have any specific practices? Um, do they change with time or do you kind of have your go-to practices? Can you talk about that a bit? Um. For me, it's just lots and lots and lots of writing in my journal. Um, I just do everything in just text files. So I just, I type really fast and free and some people enjoy longhand, but to me, I, um, every day, uh, almost every day, I open up a text file and at first I just dump out whatever's on my mind right now. But then I like to um, skeptically challenge everything I just said is a fact. And so if I said like such and such is a bad idea, then I'll kind of go back and add a question mark to it. Like, is it a bad idea? Why is it a bad idea? What if it's not a bad idea? What would it look like? Like I just, I like to do the, the skeptic thing of um, doubting everything. I, I've, I think I hold true, try doubting it, see how that looks. What if it were false? What is the opposite? What if? What are the other possibilities here? And then there's always the idea of pushing past, past the first few possibilities. Like we often think in terms of um, two choices. We often think in terms of choices, but once we get to two choices, we say, okay, well now I have to decide between these two choices. And it's like, no, okay, no, never, never stop at two choices. You can always add more. There's always the choice of do nothing, go crazy, you know, um, there's always more choices. And then you can start to look at a, a spectrum of choices. So self-knowledge, um, yeah, I just do this kind of stuff every day. Um, I just put aside time. I guess it helps that like I don't, I don't do a lot of stuff that normal people do. I don't watch videos of any sort. I don't, I just generally don't watch things. Just almost any moment I'm awake, I'm, I'm writing or talking or reading and that's it. I don't watch things. Um, I don't hang out. I don't like sit on couches and, you know, that kind of stuff. So I, I guess the, the, if it seems like I'm, I'm weird in the stuff that I do, it, it's just time that maybe normal people would spend uh, watching things. I tend to spend writing. Hmm. I'm, I'm curious how your ideas about minimalism and, and, your, your philosophies for living have changed once you had your, your child. Ah, um, can you see the, uh, the Lego back there on the table? Um, so, uh, yeah, when he was up until he was about two years old, um, I kind of held my minimalist philosophies applied to parenting. He had no toys. Um, we would go outside and play with sticks or rocks or whatever. And that's it. And then when he was like, yeah, he was two years old when I, we were living in New Zealand and I went to a cafe uh, in Masterton that had 
a huge box of toys and he saw this box of toys and he just sat there and played with everything for three hours. Like I didn't interrupt him. I just sat there for three hours, just kind of ordering a second and a third cup of tea and just watching him play for three hours. Like, Oh my God, he's in heaven. And, um, it's like, okay, I've, I've made a mistake. <laughs> he needs toys. Like this is clear. So, uh, that night I went on to eBay and found somebody in Wellington where I was living that was, um, giving away like three or four huge boxes just filled with toys for like $10. And I was like, okay, I, I took it and just presented him with four giant bins of toys. And for the next um, <clears throat> five years until we moved here, um, he just played with that giant box of toys like every single day, never got tired of it. So um, yeah, that was a good lesson that um, kind of like the beginning when you asked me about hell yeah or no, that's a certain tool for a certain situation. Minimalism is a certain tool for a certain kind of desire, for a certain kind of situation. It's not the answer to everything. So we should, you know, question all of these isms, <laughs> including that one. But um, yeah, they're, they're tools. We don't need to think that uh, just because something is true for us now, that it is true for everything, it's the answer. It's like, no, it's just, it's just a tool for now. So um, yeah, I, I don't apply most of, most of what works for me in my life. I don't apply to his life. I don't try to push it on him because I know that it's not what he needs. You know, this conversation of, of state versus um, process has been coming up a ton lately in the last few weeks for us. And I'm recognizing as you're talking that this is actually something you're doing too. You seem to be deeply committed to processes, but the process of, of changing processes and, and using processes to uncover what's working and what's not. And you, you seem extremely, to use your words, disloyal to states. You're not trying to get something, be something, you know, have a check mark on a to-do list. Like you're not looking at states at all. I think, um, you know, we talk about commonly known spectrums like introvert versus extrovert. Um, but there are all these other ones too. Like I remember reading once that there's a, a spectrum of how much we tend to find similarities versus find differences. Like that's something that there's a spectrum and they have some kind of name for it in psychology that they can measure it. They, they can ask you some questions and mm -hmm. say, oh, you're a similarity finder or you're a difference finder. And I read that one of these uh, spectrums is being process focused versus goal focused. Mm. And the cliche of the person that is process focused is doing something almost to completion and then going, that's enough. <laughs> like I was doing it for the doing, not for the end result. Mm. And so, yeah, I remember years ago when I took one of those tests, like that was, that was totally me. I will very often do something almost to completion. Then I'll feel like, yeah, I got, I got, I got the benefit I wanted. I was doing it for the doing. I didn't really care whether I got to the finish line or not. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that would, that would be kind of a, a fun little skit about like the, um, the process focused person running a marathon. And then right before you get to the finish line, uh, just walking off, like just like literally two feet before the finish line, just going like, I'm done. That's cool. I'm just like, I don't need to cross it. I was just doing it for the running. Um, Especially if they were first, that'd be really hilarious. <laughs> right, right. Nah, good enough. Yeah, that's um, that's gotta be the 26th and seventh lesson in your book. 
Never right, complete right. anything. <laughs> <laughs> Never conclude and always conclude. Well, there was, um, yeah, one of them is about reinvention and it is kind of like that. It's saying that, that we always, it's beginner's mind. It's, it's when you're with your beginner's mind, when you're new to something, that's when you make the best progress. That's when you get all the new insights and all that kind of stuff. So living in the name of reinvention, you're all, you stay a beginner at everything. And as soon as you get enough of an expert, time to reinvent, pick something completely different and do it again. But, um, Cool. Yeah. Wait, uh, I think I was just going to make another joke about the marathon. Uh, oh, I know what it was. When I was living in Singapore, I was living in this building that was right above, um, it was like right above like the Central Park kind of thing in Singapore. It was Marina Bay. Um, and that's where they would do all of like the marathons and the races and the triathlons would always begin like right below my window. So very often, at like 6 a.m. on a Sunday, I'd be woken up with like, <laughs> and um, I just look out the window at like all these people, like organizers with clipboards and everybody with the numbers on. And I just think, you know, you could have run the same 10 miles yesterday just by yourself. Like, <laughs> In the why, woods. <laughs> yeah, why would you choose all of this noise and screaming and commotion and the numbers and the clipboards and the walkie-talkies? Why would you, why not just do the run yesterday? And I said this to somebody who looked at me and said, you know, some people like being around other people. All <laughs> oh, right, yeah, that, that's my introvert thing. <laughs> like, everything's better alone. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> And some people like structure, yeah, and organization. And the the, that's mm -hmm. the the goal focused versus process focused. Is if you're goal focused, then it's like really important to you that it's like I did the marathon. I was number thirty seven, and I came in whatever nineteenth place of that marathon. It's like really important. The yeah, goal focused people want to show that they achieved that goal. And it like the you know there was a guy that beat the world record. Uh, ran the marathon in under two hours just uh, last week or something, but they say that it doesn't officially count because he did it by himself. Like he did it, he had tra uh, pacers running with him, um, but because it wasn't an official marathon that had other contestants, it doesn't count for some reason. What? Yeah, he did it anyway, but it's like because there, it wasn't a competitive official marathon, and, and he knew that. He said, well, I'm, I'm doing it anyway just to show that in ideal situations, a marathon can be run in under two hours. We've proved it now. And so I hope others will now, you know, like once, once Roger Bannister broke the four minute mile, like 10 other people did it the following year, even though it had never been done up until then. So he said, I'm doing it for that reason. You can tell me it wasn't official. It doesn't matter to me. Huh. Metaphors. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, just the kind of thread of this conversation. It's interesting that uh, life and living things, just there's such a variety and that there are so many different ways that living beings can thrive. You know, like some, some creatures are, you know, more adapted to a certain niche and there's maybe less variety, at least within the species, but then there's another species living somewhere else that's doing something totally different you know, like different kinds of finches or whatever. Um, but humans are fascinating in the sense that we are so versatile. There are just so many different, you know, modes of being that can make people happy and fulfilled. 
um, and and even in your book, you know, about how, how to live, you're presenting so many different kind of ways that or pathways that people can take, and even just that realization, I think I think is really interesting for people to ponder, um, especially if they're feeling stuck, you know. Like there are just a million different paths and the one that you're on right now may not be optimal for you. Or you might've okay. you know, been there, done that already. I think that's what's really helpful about um, the four hour work week book inspired a lot of people because Tim was writing about um, here's a different way you could approach life. You know, whether it's the, um, mini, what do you call it? Mini retirements or just like even tiny stories about the family that sold their house and traveled the world on a sailboat for an entire year. And the total cost to live on a boat for a whole year and travel the sail the world was $18,000. Just even, even just hearing that something like that is a possibility makes you go, whoa, like, is that what I want? I could do that. And even just knowing that you could makes you question, do I want to or not? I kind of want to. Do I want to badly enough to give up this house? Uh, maybe not. Maybe therefore, I actually value comfort more than sailing. I just, yeah, these things make you uh, question your values. Um, but yeah, it's, it's always wonderful to be presented with other options. That's what um, explorers do for us, right? So say 200 years ago, um, we, there were parts, there were places on the map that we just really didn't know what was there yet. And so explorers were thought of as like physical explorers, you know, they, they, with the, the, the hat and the little thing, and they'd go off into the darkest Peru and explore places that hadn't been explored yet. And then they'd come back and draw the maps and report to us about what's there. But now that we know what's everywhere physically in the world, I think we still need explorers that are like life explorers, like go explore what can be done with a life and show it to us, you know, show us places on the, the map of possibilities that we haven't, that we didn't know were there. Mm. Well, yeah, yeah, I think that's a place to wrap up. Yeah. Good place to wrap up. It was really surprising to me how many parallels in this conversation ha there have been to so many of the areas we found ourselves talking about, the sense-making, the sovereignty, the shadow work, stoicism, all of this stuff. And it's just like, just it's really cool to see someone really in a different way, a, a, a different kind of place in life, coming to a lot of the same conclusions That's from their I own like reflections. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, you know, I... Uh, I've done basically no interviews for the last almost four years now. And um, yeah, when, when you guys asked, even, you know, even I'd said it on my blog recently, like, well, oh, I'm starting to feel open to the idea. So people started asking and I still kept saying no. <laughs> and then I, I got, uh, you guys asked and I was like, yeah, okay. yeah. all right, you guys are cool. <laughs> that was weird. We're going to have a good conversation. Yeah. And I, and I love this conversation. So thank you. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Thank you too. It was awesome to um to finally get that yes <laughs> to talk to you. Yeah, it's it's um it's I don't know how to put it into words, but you're weird. <laughs> That's thank it's you. it's cool. The ultimate um, compliment. <laughs> 
yeah it's yeah. it's um like the way that you phrase things and the way that you do things is just very in some ways very counter to how other people do things um but you seem to have so much joy about it you know like you're stoked about it and you're just like yeah <laughs> trying these things i don't know there's just it's the tone of this interview was really different than a lot of our other interviews and i like that yeah 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 <laughs> cool. so cool yeah thank you for your time <laughs> and yeah anybody uh who listened all the way to the end go to my site at sivers.org and send me an email and say hello i still reply to every email and i enjoy it i like hearing from strangers around the world it's fun cool cool awesome Hey everyone, just a reminder that the registration for our membership area closes on the 23rd of this month. Uh, if you want to check it out, get access to the courses and the group calls and any other events and workshops that we're doing. We've got a lot of them coming up. You can check that out by going to members.futurethinkers.org. Thanks for listening to our interview with Derek Sivers. You can get all the links and show notes at futurethinkers.org slash 117 and stay tuned until the next episode. The brand new Future Thinkers members portal is now live. Develop your sovereignty and self-knowledge with our in-depth courses, get access to our weekly sense-making calls, join the Q&As with past podcast guests, and much more. Become a Future Thinkers member today at futurethinkers.org members. To stay up to date with new episodes, subscribe to Future Thinkers on your favorite platform. And leave us a review or a like. It really helps out the show. And don't forget to share this episode on social media. Enter the Future Thinkers giveaway and win our brand new community membership, including in-depth courses, private calls, and more, as well as a supply of Qualia, a complete cognitive upgrade for your brain. To enter the contest, simply go to futurethinkers.org giveaway and sign up for our mailing list to instantly get our 50-page guide on how to adapt to the future. There are many ways to increase your chances of winning. Enter the competition today. This episode is brought to you by Qualia, a nootropic supplement that helps support mental performance and mood. To get 10% off, use the code FUTURE at checkout. And to learn more about neurohacking, visit futurethinkers.org neuro.